information overload is part of the feature. Making us feel like we can never stop consuming information is part of the design of these systems. They don't want our consumption to end. There is no concept of informed. You are informed. You can stop reading. Like that's not something that any of these systems want us to ever do. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Michael Slaby, is back on the show to talk about his new book, For All the People. Michael is currently the community director at Harmony Labs, a nonprofit that builds communities and tools to reform and transform media systems. Michael made his name in politics by leading technology at both Obama presidential campaigns. His book is about the changes in our media ecosystem brought about by the digital revolution that are not serving our democracy and our civic life and what we might be able to do to reform that situation. It's a timely question and we had a very good discussion. You should listen. So first our sponsor, and then my interview with Michael Slaby with For All the People. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Because you have been on a couple times, I don't think you need much introduction. Why don't you say one or two words about who you are and why you wrote this book? Uh, great. Well, thanks for having me back. Hopefully, third time's a charm. My background, I've spent most of the last you know decade or so working in campaign politics and was involved as in the technology world for Obama uh, on the campaign side both times. More recently, I've been focused on the effects of media on society more broadly, uh, working in Harmony Labs. And the book I wrote called For All the People is really about exploring the collision between modern media and civic life and, and how to resurrect or reclaim ourselves from the wreckage. The 2016 cycle and the President Trump's administration revealed a lot of profound consequences of the evolution of media and the sort of denigration of political institutions and norms and our ability to communicate effectively. And all of these themes need exploration and we need to do some things about them because the path we're on is not working for us. So the first roughly half of the book is really diagnosis and explication. And, you know, you talk about a graph that is the big change from the old content distribution world that we had. Can you explain that part of the book to start out with? The first four chapters are really about sort of where are we and why are we here and trying to sort of put some clarity to the feelings of sort of discomfort and dis-ease that we feel about political culture and information. And it just all feels like it's not working, but we don't have a really great explanation for it. And ultimately, what I suggest is that what all of that discomfort or a lot of that discomfort is the result of the evolution of media from a set of channels where we lived in a very hierarchical world where uh, people's roles in the system of storytelling were very fixed. Publishers used media channels to reach audiences. That was a pretty hierarchical relationship. Audiences were very passive. People's roles were very fixed. There were a lot of gatekeepers controlling who got to tell stories and to whom. And as social media sort of entered the world in the mid-2000s, it was sort of entering a world where those channels were fragmenting, but they were still channels. They were still fixed hierarchical systems. But as those sort of fragments got knit back together into a graph, a world where 
all of the participants in the system, whether they're publishers, we are all become publishers, consumers, and distributors of information. The roles are much more distributed. We get content in lots of unpredictable ways. The world is less hierarchical. Gatekeepers have lost a lot of their control over who tells stories and to whom. That in a graph, a bunch of things that were true about our channel-based world are no longer true, including the gatekeeper's ability to control who speaks is a great consequence. The rise of more diverse voices and more people having the power to tell stories is a really good consequence of this evolution. The gatekeepers also used to provide us with our sort of concept and understanding of credibility and authority. We used gatekeepers like publishers, like the New York Times, as a substitute for being able to understand what was credible in the world. Now, that was super problematic. The power that those gatekeepers wielded was very much a power of reinforcing a status quo, which was mostly sort of a white male hegemony over stories and validity and information. In the graph and in the systems we now rely on for consuming information, it's very hard to distinguish different types of content. It's very hard to understand source, intent, what's credible, who's authoritative. We don't have good markers for any of these things. And so we end up relying on substitutes like proximity or confirmation bias to help us understand the world around us. Those are flawed substitutes. And it becomes really much, much harder to sort of remain in community with a broader set of people, especially as the systems are trying to sort us into what Eli Pariser refers to as filter bubbles. Well, let's let's explore that a little bit. It is hard to get your head around the complexity of the media system. Sure. There's so many players. There are these big platforms that are dominating sort of the recommendation of, of content like yep. Facebook and Google. Facebook, Google. Right? Yep. And and others. There's also, you know, like you mentioned, there are really good consequences to this. You can find information on almost anything if you have a particular interest, but what you get served and what dominates your own filter bubble is sometimes really bad. And and, and we can see the consequences politically at, at a top level of people believing bizarre things. Yeah. And importantly, is a lot of those choices are made for us, right? And those choices are made for us by systems and algorithms whose benefit is their own profitability and not necessarily our comprehensive understanding of the world or increased empathy or understanding difference of opinions or effective civil discourse. That's not what these systems are optimized for. And, and because those choices are made by someone else, they're also made opaquely. We don't get to understand most of the time what is deselected for us. We don't get to turn off the algorithm. We don't get to know how the algorithm works. The algorithm works in an invisible way as it constructs a stream for us. And that's a problem. If democracy is a system of self-government and choice, it needs to be actual choice. Like It's important that we choose, even if we make the same decision every day, I know that that's inefficient, but choosing not to consume something helps us understand the world. It helps us understand that, that that perspective exists. When we don't have to make that choice, it seems like only the people agree with us are the only people that exist in the world. And that's just not the case. Now, having a broader conversation about sort of validity of political discourse and sort of what we want to make room for and what we don't is a bigger conversation and a hard one. But it begins with reclaiming our ability to choose what we consume. I suspect that people aren't even aware of the degree to which they're not choosing. Of, oh, for sure. And it, and that's in the company's interest too. The obscurity, and this is one of the points I try to make in the book when we talk about the economics of information is obscuring all of this is actually a huge part of the innovation. Because, you know, the, the bias of information information has sort of always been biased. And and there are lots of different types of information from stories and entertainment to history to sort of factual news and a bunch of different types of storytelling that we all rely on to make sense of the world. You know, we go back to the sort of 18th century, newspapers were owned by political parties. But that was a known fact. 
Now, we don't know what Facebook is optimizing for other than that we stay on Facebook. What they are optimizing for is an inventory. And inventory means we continue to participate as effectively and consistently as possible. So regardless of the other consequences of those choices, Facebook is going to give us what keeps us on Facebook. Well, so the good side of this change is just the availability of so much more than there used to be, although there's there's less of certain things like local news. But what would you say are the are the worst characteristics of the change that's taken place over the, just the last 15, 20 years? Trust is a sort of complicated concept that's actually comprised of, you know, the intent of something and the credibility of something, a bunch of sort of adherence to fact and some of these other pieces. I think the the indistinguishability of the sources and intent of the stories that we consume is actually the biggest sort of, if I were to try to point at one consequence here, the indistinguishability is really tough. Even if we really, really want to be good consumers of information and we want to be literate about media systems and we want to be careful about what we consume and to make good choices, it's actually just really, really hard. You know, I look at a Twitter stream and there might be a verified check mark, but verified doesn't mean credible. It just means they've decided that I am who I say I am. It doesn't mean that I'm credible about what I'm talking about. And how do we know what to trust? How do we know what to believe? And what, what do we use as substitutes for actual credibility and authority? When you combine that with the incredible rise of more voices, and look, the ability to sell, tell stories and sort of the right to tell your own story is an expression of power because the stories that we collectively believe in are how we make sense of the world. It's how society stays together. And so storytelling is really important. And so the distribution of that power to more citizens is, is a good thing. What we do with it is, is not guaranteed. I sort of couldn't stop myself from making the great power, great responsibility joke more than once in the book because I read and watched too much Spider-Man in my life, apparently. But I do think this is one of the sort of individual level responsibilities that we have to try to get our heads around, which is if we have more power, what is the responsibility that comes with that to tell the truth and to be humble and to be critical and skeptical in a healthy way? about what we tell and how we tell our stories and share information and what we consume and who we listen to and how we diversify our own streams and all those kinds of questions. Do we have a system right now where we select against stories that have those characteristics of humility and truth? Probably. Ultimately, I, I think we have a system that's pretty sort of allergic to nuance in a system that's really optimized around sort of outrage and attention that sort of being thoughtful and careful and nuanced makes it hard to get attention. Especially when we think about something like sort of political Twitter sphere, you know, it's a, a careful sort of thoughtful nuanced take on something sort of gets lost in all the hot take culture of sort of just declaring things to be true with, with no caveats, which is just not, often like the world is pretty complicated most things are actually pretty nuanced our systems are really not well designed for that my experience of talking with people in conversation is that you know a lot of this gets blamed on our attention span the platforms love to blame us for this problem we're just giving people what they want i i think that's bullshit just plainly i i think that people have a lot of a time and attention for care and nuance and understanding things when presented with mechanisms and in ways that allow them to engage openly and honestly and not put them on the defensive and not force them to make a decision in eight seconds and not put them on their heels in a system of information overload that makes it almost cognitively impossible to continue to think carefully about something. Information overload is part of the feature making us feel like we can never stop consuming information is part of the design of these systems. They don't want our consumption to end. There is no concept of informed. You are informed. You can stop reading. Like that's not something that any of these systems want us to ever do. 
when I was a kid and I got the local newspaper, I would read it from cover to cover. I read the whole thing. And then you went outside. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. that that's that's pretty healthy. Like that sounds pretty healthy. Now look, the world is really big. Can you actually be fully informed about the whole world and one of course not. You know, we have to make decisions about our frame of reference and what matters to us and what we want to be informed about. But even if we narrow down to a topic that we really care about and want to be informed about, the systems we rely on to get that information they are interested in like promoting FOMO. They're interested in promoting the idea that like, you don't really know everything. You need to keep reading, read, 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 click more, click more, click more. It's exhausting, you know, especially right now, you know, a year into the pandemic where so much of our lives are, are digital and virtual and online. This sort of information exhaustion and overload is so palpable. A lot of people are talking about the sort of the intensity of the exhaustion and it's very real, right? Like it's, you know, Daniel Levitin talks about this in his book called The Organized Mind. I reference a couple of times in my book around just our the cognitive limits of how much information we can process at any given moment. And that these systems are all designed to put us past that limit all the time, constantly. And that's really good for us making rash choices like impulse buys on Instagram to buy sneakers we don't need because they're cool. I might be describing myself. It happens, but that's what they're for, right? They want us in a state where, you know, it's, you know, I joke that social media companies have sort of taken over for casinos in terms of sort of behavioral psychology and manipulation. And that's what they want us doing, consuming things, consuming more information. It feels like if you don't think about it, you kind of imagine that the media ecosystem, as we see it right now, the media system evolved naturally kind of like capitalism, right? Like <laughs> in general, like it is, it is what happened. An, therefore, another it, massive it, set of systems that aren't working for us. Well, capitalism works immensely well in many regards in providing a plethora of goods and services and many ways raising the standard of living. It has tons of consequences that are externalities that are that, like pollution that, that are problematic right. no, no. Or, for sure. And I, I would actually, I was being flippant. That wasn't useful. But the analog I'm thinking about is like, well, we saw that capitalism had these problems gradually over time in a result of booms and busts and poison food and all these things. And we, we had many different regulatory regimes come one after another, the Food and Drug Administration. And some things have been improved because of those reforms. Is this media system as it is currently evolved, reformable? What are the moves that we can make as a society? A hundred percent reformable and redesignable and regulatable. I do not believe that the sort of dysfunction we feel is an inevitable consequence of modern media systems or social media. I think that's a total cop-out. I think these are systems that just like capitalism, these are systems that were designed by people and are working well for the benefit of their designers. They're just not necessarily working well for society as a whole or for our civic life in particular. And part of that is that I think to a large degree, the evolution of these systems was allowed to happen, to persist, to explode pretty organically without a lot of direction. And I think early on, you know, back in the, you know, early, early, early days, you know, the sort of Vint Surf. TCPIP days of DARPA and the ARPANET and and Tim Berners-Lee inventing the World Wide Web and the very academic early days of the internet, there were some implicit beliefs about what greater connectivity was going to do for society and that it was going to lead to greater diversity of voice, which it did. And it was going to lead to more information for more people, which it did. But it was also going to inexorably lead to more effective, more um, participatory Western liberal democracy. And I think that's an assumption that was not a given. And because we believed that it was implicitly true, we did not make it an explicit requirement of how the systems work. And we allowed sort of the engine of commercialization to take over for the growth and all of the things that get optimized for in commercial contexts around private benefit and profit took over for all the public goods and public benefits that we need from our public sphere. And so ultimately, 
taking back that conversation, articulating again, or for the first time, what do we need from these systems relative to civic life? How do we need these things to work? And providing those as sort of cultural and moral direction and constraints to entrepreneurs and innovators who want to try new things is good as, as sort of a direction in which to head. And also using that as a framework for considering how we want to think about regulation is also necessary. The, the internet is being largely regulated by a set of laws and systems that preceded its existence. And it's just not going to work. Systems that were designed to regulate terrestrial radio and broadcast-oriented, spectrum-oriented media just aren't really well suited to, to thinking about modern distribution engines of information. We just need some new language. You know, even things like the fairness doctrine and the concept of a common carrier and some of the other things that exist in our telecommunications regulatory framework, we just we don't really have the right language and vocabulary built into the system right now. So it needs to be updated. It needs to be updated with a lot of care and intention, and which is where I think this sort of values conversation about what we want matters a lot so that we are careful about unintended consequences on the regulatory side too. I 100% believe these systems can be improved and redesigned and can in fact provide us with the things that we want from greater connectivity and the less of what is making us feel like the system is so dysfunctional. That said, there's one thing I want to say is that like media is not the only source of dysfunction. And I think this is important, right? That there are other, you know, sort of systemic challenges and problems, whether it's sort of the inequality of American style capitalism or the corruption of campaign finance or the sort of inherent corruption of the way um, redistricting and gerrymandering sort of dominate how elected officials choose their own voters. There's a bunch of forces that are making our civic life dysfunctional and feel like a swamp. And the media systems is part of it and is a big part of it. And I think improving those systems allow us to have healthier discourse about these other problems. But it's not solely, it's not like Facebook is destroying democracy. Like that is a wild oversimplification that is not useful. Well, deciding to tackle something like this, that's an ambitious aim. It's an ambitious book. It's wanting, you know, kind of proposing wholesale changes to the way the country and the world receive information is, you know, that that takes a certain amount of bravery to wade into that and and tangle with or, it. Or, or madness, one yeah. of the two. Talk about your motivation there. Like what's pissing you off so much that you're willing to put all this time and effort and what is giving you so much hope that you're willing to prescribe things that might change it? To a certain degree, I look out at America and our civic life and the world. And I am frustrated by the dysfunction that I see in our, particularly international politics. And I've had sort of a front row seat for a lot of that. And that's sort of where I sort of started feeling the frustration and the disconnect between my experience of politics and civic life with the experience in community in the small town where I live and the disconnect between those, those experiences and that I just, I fundamentally believe two things. One, that the dysfunction we feel is taking us off track in a way that keeps us from being able to address the bigger questions uh, that we need to figure out about the future of humanity and where we want the country to go. And that without addressing some of the information system problems, we're not going to address the other things. We're just not going to be able to do it. And I strongly feel that we have to figure out how to address some of those things or the future of the country and humanity looks very ugly and 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 mean and a little scary. I just don't believe that that's sort of the destiny of humanity. I, I believe that that humans are are actually quite good at living in community and and that we have a capacity for empathy and faith and interdependence that is belied by sort of the dysfunction and of sort of inequality and negative sense of the politics of destruction and the sort of tyranny of outrage that we see in our national politics is just really not what we're meant for. And if we're going to 
embrace the possibility of something better, we got to find systems that are going to let us do that. Partially, you start with what you know. And so when I think about, you know, moving in a healthier direction as a country, that is a much bigger and broader conversation that includes millions of voices that need to be part of that. What I know and I've come to see about sort of technology and media and information is that these are things that are getting in our way. Like a lot of things, people talk about you write what you know. So I'm writing what I know and I'm trying to contribute. This is a conversation that's going on and it's been going on before me and it's and I am joining this conversation. Like I'm not inventing fire here, but I'm trying to be productive about contributing to a conversation that is solvable and not just about the temperature of the dumpster fire, right? That like, yes, we need to diagnose. And I, like you said, I spent a good chunk of the book diagnosing where we are and why I think we are where we are and how, how bad is it? But just getting clarity about the nature of the water we're drowning in is not sufficient. Like we actually need to figure out what we're going to do. And I think part of what is required is being willing to attempt to suggest paths as a way to start the conversation about where we want to go. And so that's, that's really what the back half of the book is all about. It's interesting to me that you started this project well pre-Trump because the Trump effect exposed so much about what is dysfunctional because he somehow hijacked the system. I don't know how much to give him credit for ingenuity in that or just like the way he is worked, you know, but he knew how to find attention. He knew how to do it in a very cynical way and in a kind of a, a way without any nuance whatsoever. But he showed us that we, he could take what seemed like a solid functioning democracy and turn it into a potential personality cult driven authoritarian wannabe nature. I mean, like totally huge, scary. And he's not done. No, he's not. And I, and I think the really important word in all of that was seemed like a functioning democracy. I think President Trump was to a large degree an inevitable symptom of this, the direction the system was going. He's sort of an emergent phenomenon of the dysfunction of like, maximizing the like allergy to nuance and focusing on outrage as a mechanism of attention and self-centeredness and obsession with celebrity. And he was to a large degree, sort of the, the ultimate expression of, of the, the dysfunction that the system is creating. And that is a very bright spotlight to your point. His presidency alerted a much broader community to this conversation. You know, I was sort of exploring this idea about the evolution from channels to graphs back in 2013, as I was looking at the experiences that I'd had in the Obama campaigns and what was unique about what we were doing and what was so different about the landscape in which we were operating and trying to make sense of that was where I started the exploration for this book. And what President Trump provided to this conversation was the stark relief of a spotlight, showing us just how dysfunctional things could get if we allow them to continue to persist. That this is our normal until we make it otherwise. That the expression of rage and violence and the normalization of political violence and attacking other people, these are normal until proven otherwise. Until we push them back out of normal political discourse, violence is now a normal feature of national dialogue. That's a problem. That is deeply anti-democratic. That is deeply authoritarian in its sort of basic essence. And we're going to have to do something about this. We have to be proactive about addressing the things that are not working. The, the basic momentum of these systems is now so bad that if we're not actively pushing back against them, we're moving backwards. How the heck can we <laughs> can we <laughs> can we get the kind of like first of all, talk a little about the sort of reforms that you think might push back. And then how the heck are we going to get anyone to make them? 
Yeah, I mean, some of them at a regulatory level involve sort of reconsidering the Telecommunications Act that's been amended a few times, but has not been sort of whole scale reimagined in a number of in a long, long time. And that includes a conversation. People like to talk a lot about Section 230, which is the piece of the uh, Telecommunications Act that absolves distributors of online distributors in particular of liability for the content of the system. So it keeps Facebook from being liable for people doing crazy shit on Facebook. I think removing that Section 230 without thinking more holistically about how that's part of the system is is a little risky because I think it calls into question all content moderation. But I do think, for instance, platforms having some responsibility for the consequences of what they distribute is part of the future, is part of a healthier system. Right. So the introduction of liability for a lack of transparency and moderation or not moderating things that are genuinely considered dangerous. And how do we adjudicate that right now? There's a lot of talk about the Facebook Supreme Court. They have created this sort of board that adjudicates some of this stuff, but it's part of Facebook. It it is not genuinely independent. Right. It's not genuinely a public process. It's still Facebook protecting Facebook. And so while it might be a sort of a nod in the right direction conceptually, it's still a private system propping up a system of private profit. It is not really moving us in the right direction. Now, it might be a model for a better public discussion about what do we consider dangerous? What what do we need to exclude from civic discourse? And, and how do we want that to work? So yes, there is a like whole scale you know, reform of the of the Telecommunications Act that needs to happen. One of the things that is required for that is a better public consciousness about media literacy and media systems, because that needs to get reflected in the leaders in Congress who are going to do the regulating. If you listen to congressional leaders, for instance, questioning Mark Zuckerberg, for example, when he's on Capitol Hill, they don't really understand the questions they're asking to a large degree. And you hear... Mark occasionally like trying not to sound like an asshole when he's saying things like, no, 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 we make money by selling ads. He sort of can't believe he has to explain this. And now some of that makes him come off as arrogant. But I think sometimes he's actually, he sometimes he is being really arrogant, but sometimes he's actually trying not to be. But the lack of understanding is so high that he comes off <laughs> as just being incredibly dismissive, partially because they just don't know what they're asking. And that's got to change too, right? So that means people with higher levels of media understanding and literacy being part of the process. So new people running for office, things like run for something, encouraging more younger digitally native people being part of our regulatory systems and elected officials is part of the solution here. Some of the things you talked about in the book, smaller pieces than the big government regulatory structure, like trying to redesign systems so that you know who wrote something and kind of rating their credibility and and building that over time. There's there's a lot of ideas. There's a whole raft of them in the book. Yeah, I try to break media systems down into sort of big component buckets because it all feels a little hard to address all at once. I talk about the platforms themselves and sort of redesigning the systems. I talk about the content itself and sort of protocols and the way that we consume information and what kind of metadata sort of persists with pieces of content. I talk about the regulatory information and the institutional piece. And I talked about us as individuals and how we participate in the process. You know, the redesign level, Facebook has a really clear understanding of what I consume and what I don't. They could reveal to me relatively easily in their interface what I don't consume. That is a relatively simple design choice that they're making to not help me understand my own blind spots. That is a design choice they could make with some simplicity. Could could Twitter slow down the velocity of and intensity of, of disagreement and argument by putting a pause in the retweet button? So you just can't do it as fast. Might that help keep the temperature of conversation in a more manageable place? Some of these things are very small design decisions. What's important about them is they are informed by different values. And that's the piece that we've got to start articulating, that we want these systems to be healthier contributors to a healthier civic life. 
and that we aren't willing to accept they are just going to exploit us for their own profit, that that's no longer good enough. And that may come from things like advertising boycotts, where the only point of leverage for a profitable private company is to attack profit. And doing those at a sufficient scale and with a sufficient intensity to actually move the needle on their balance sheet means that has to happen at a very big scale. And that's the hard part about those kinds of efforts, right? You know, you see post the January 6th riot of lots of companies talking about not contributing political contributions in Q1 to organizations that were complicit in the riots. Well, guess what? Nobody gives political donations in Q1 right after an election. They're not going to give any money that quarter anyway. They're just trying to get credit. They're just trying to put out a good press release. They're not actually taking a moral stand. So can we actually help articulate publicly what we want from healthy, what we want from better systems, and try to create some moral consequences for failure to be good actors in the system? That's part of it too. There is a public advocacy component to this as well. I mean, there are some good actors. Like on election day, I had a fairly high state of anxiety. Yeah, me too. And so I went into my wood shop in my garage and I turned on NPR rather than say watching CNN. And for me, NPR, I'm going to get that same news, but I'm going to get it in a not organized around outrage, not organized around speed, not organized around profit the same way. And and I just found that took my temperature way down. There's some suggestion in your book about like, I don't remember how you put it exactly, but like an always on public sphere area where information is more healthy. Talk about what your idea there is. So essentially what this is, is a public option for public information. Private markets very rarely provide public goods the way we want them. If healthy, sort of public, civic-oriented information is a public good, it might need to be publicly funded. What that looks like in the information landscape in which we exist can't be a quiet little source of information that's hard to find, dripped with an eyedropper into an ocean of chaos and rage. Like, that's, that's window dressing. That's like trying to look like you're solving a problem. What it needs is a system, and in the language of the graph, you need an edge that everybody has access to, that is easy to find, and that is creating and distributing content at sufficient volume to be a meaningful contributor to the national dialogue, but that is adhering to a very tight idea of what we mean by information. And one of the challenges with the concept of news is that it's been stretched to include all kinds of things, commentary, analysis, opinion. And if we need good public information, we might need to fund it publicly. I like that idea. What if you were put in charge of such a new agency, right? That's not impossible. And you had a budget for, I don't know, does, is that what like the BBC, you know, NPR? You see it in BBC, you see it in Germany. I think the trick is those are small more smaller, much smaller, and much more homogenous countries. So I think this is harder and more expensive to do in the United States. What I would want to do is I would want to put, and part of this has to do with addressing something you described before around local information deficits. This is not just sort of trying to push on the tide of national dialogue. It's also about helping address the information deficits at a local level. And so I would put a pair of content experts in every county in America, 3,143 counties, whose job it is to tell the stories of and contextualize local information in the context of national dialogue. I would have that ladder from local information up to national information with an editorial, a public editorial staff that is sort of very carefully representative of the country. And that as much as possible, editorial decisions are made publicly. Decisions around everything from headlines to coverage choices are made in a way that the process is also visible. So that the process of creating information is something that you also build trust in. I mean, does that make sense that just to nitpick, like Gilpin County, Colorado and L.A. County, California, getting each two people 
one is an enormous multiple of the people of another. Look, could you do it uh, based on population? Maybe you do it based on congressional district instead of county. Congressional districts are ostensibly supposed to all be the, the same number of people. And then that's the theory. They're not quite, it's not quite accurate. That's also a solvable problem. We should just make the, we should make that number equal to whatever the smallest block is. And then everybody will actually be equal. But so maybe we do it by congressional district instead of, instead of by county. That's a totally reasonable challenge to what I was saying. How do you avoid something like if you watch what Trump tried to do or start to do with Voice of America, right? He started to install people in the leadership there to change the message, to take it over, to become a Trumpian entity rather than what it was before. And it was far from perfect before, but it was insulated and institutionalized in a very different way than he tried to change it to. If you're making this positive public arena for information, which done well would add a great deal to the country, how do you keep it from being hijacked? I think the sort of the governing board and the sort of editorial board's need to be insulated from partisanship in the same way that we try to insulate other institutions from partisanship. This is not easy, but, you know, creating balance, requiring um, sort of distribution of voice and partisanship across the governance is part of it. Doing that by party, the way the FEC is designed with essentially three commissioners from each party that are sort of designed to deadlock and never get anything done it might be the right spirit, but not the right implementation. The ability to act and continue to tell stories has got to be part of this. This might be a place where, um, you know, in the same way that sort of independent redistricting boards are part of an answer to partisan gerrymandering, can we create like an independent governing board that helps continually dictate the sort of editorial board of a public institution like this so that we are, we do create some insulation from the pendulum swing of of sort of national hyperpolarization. I, I think it's solvable. I don't I don't have a perfect answer, obviously, but I think it's a solvable problem. Well, I wonder how to accomplish this kind of reform without running afoul of of the partisanship and of the way that everybody looks at this either ideologically or how it's going to affect the balance of power between the parties, right? People are going to look askance at it from different parts of the spectrum. Of course, I think that's true. I'd like, I think sort of technology regulation right now is complicated dramatically by both the sort of desire for partisan ends to still be possible and to still leverage these tools effectively for partisan gain. Um, I also think, you know, there, there is a broader geopolitical complexity of the role that these big companies, Facebook and Google and Amazon play in sort of the geopolitical balance of technology power with China, for instance, that there's like a whole nother layer of complexity about thinking about technology regulation that we haven't even gotten to that sort of the international consequences and, you know, what's happening with the EU with privacy, where there's really leading on some of this stuff. It's really, really complicated to your point about can can we get, make these kinds of big changes in our current system of government, it's really tough. And one of the things that I am worried about about the current administration is that the urgent need to address the public health crisis and the sort of consequential economic challenges that we're facing are going to crowd out the civic crisis that we're in. We have to figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time, or we're going to sort of end up sort of saving saving the democracy only as it sort of slides off the hill and not really address the underlying pieces that are keeping our civic life from working. Do you have a sense of who in the new administration might be interested in this problem and who's starting to work on it? You know, there's some people in the news coming in on the anti-monopoly front and, you know, there's, there's some, there seems like there's some angles that might FTC. Look, the, the the monopoly power question in antitrust is a big piece of this. Uh, sort of the basic monopolistic economics of the way the sort of winner take allness of our economy is a piece of this for sure. Um, and there are people loudly talking about that in really really good ways. Um, look, I think there's a lot of ambition in the Biden team around re sort of reclaiming these systems for good. I think the question will be one about as always about political will. 
and a, a willingness to put effort into these particular challenges over other particular challenges. That's ultimately going to get centered around, you know, the president and the chief of staff and the same centers of power that exist in every administration. My hope is that the people going into the FCC and the FTC and coming into, you know, some of the other sort of less well-known sort of levers around sort of digital transformation, you know, the CTO in the White House and some of these other places are, are given enough weight and enough importance by the sort of traditional power centers, meaning this chief, Ron Klain, the chief of staff's office, to be able to really push. And I think that's, that's the biggest question mark. Are we willing to do it? So there's that top-down piece of it, which is, I think, at some point inevitable to solve it, we need that. But there's also sort of this I know you have an interest in sort of the entrepreneurial side of this, which is more of the bottom up. What do you see out there in terms of innovations that might help lead us towards solutions? Yeah, I think a good example of something where you see a group trying to address, for instance, the credibility gap of like the indistinguishability of what is credible and what is not as a group like NewsGuard. They have a largely human curated system for keeping track of the credibility of information from different sources over time. And it works as a browser plugin. It's not perfect, but it's a really good attempt at starting to try to create a greater level of distinguishability around something that we really need to be able to distinguish, which is what is credible. And I think this may be a place where, you know, I think cryptocurrencies are sort of the most obvious and like noisiest proofs of concept of what blockchains do. This might be a place where a blockchain or like a public ledger is actually really valuable as a way of being able to keep track of credibility over time from a person in a public way that's immutable. One of the problems with our current landscape is lack of history, no memory. And so something that allows us to sort of keep track of some of these things over time in a transparent and public way could be super valuable. I think there are a lot of innovations that are possible. And that's where I think the sort of public declaration of values matters a lot because entrepreneurs need constraints and direction. There's a woman out in Denver who has something which is a media bias chart. You've probably seen it. It's It sort of has a little pyramid of news sources and they work pretty hard. Uh, people can quarrel with the methodology. They work pretty hard to say this is this is a nonpartisan fact-based news source like AP. Here are you know the Breitbart right wing and some of the crazy left wing centers too. Like that's a way for people to look up a news source and figure out where it fits based on rating of content. You could, I assume you could do that for any contributor too. Like you could say this particular columnist is more credible than this other one. But how do you keep that stuff from being gamed? How do you, you know, really make sure, it work? The, the woman, the woman you're referring to's name is uh, Vanessa Otero, um, yeah, who runs at, at, yeah, at Fontes Media. And I think it's a good example. I, look, to your point, can these things get gamed? Sure. You know, anytime you introduce an incentive, there's there can you can also accidentally in, introduce an incentive for fraud. That's not a reason not to try, first of all, obviously. And I don't think you're suggesting that. But uh, I, I do think we have to be sort of create some safeguards around how can you sort of a, appeal a decision. This happened last week. There was a fake video of the Mars Perseverance rover that went around that got shared by like everybody. A lot of people shared it by mistake. It really looked like a NASA video. If there's a public permanent record of what I've shared and what is credible, how much does that ding my credibility score because I shared that one piece of misinformation? That's a great question. I would love to be in a world where we're having that quality of conversation about how to understand your credibility and being that clear-eyed and open about the sources of information and to have a quality of conversation at that level. If that's the problem we have, we are winning this fight. A lot of times the way that we've accomplished substantial change has been with social movement. That's how we get the Civil Rights Act or many other examples. Can we create a social movement around democratizing our media and, and making it more healthy and, and stand for civil society? I do think there is, because we are the inventory, we are part of the supply chain that makes the system work. 
the more that we can reclaim our power in the system, the more power we have collectively around public advocacy. So I think that's where media literacy and understanding understanding our power and our role in the system is a starting place for starting to express that power and demand that these systems work for us instead of exploit us. There's no question in my mind that that kind of organizing is possible. We're talking about a really complicated systems that we all also dependent on. And so reforming them is tricky. Like I'm not suggesting that it's easy or simple, but I do think there is a lot of individual power to be had here. What's giving you the most hope, Michael? I start from a place that I think we're capable of sort of better than what we're getting. What gives me a lot of hope is that the next generation after me is so much more natively comfortable with understanding the nature of how stories work now than we are and sort of the the boomers that came before me that the sort of native understanding of this new architecture is going to make it easier to address these systems. The lack of understanding, the disorientation is part of the problem we see in regulation. It's part of the problem we see in why misinformation and disinformation are more effective than they've ever been. Those concepts are not new. Propaganda is not new. Their effectiveness in systems where we are easy to manipulate might be greater than ever. And that is partially a consequence of our misunderstanding of the systems. So I have a lot of hope in that people I talk to who are sort of native to these systems have a much healthier level of skepticism about what they consume. They have a much different sort of attention to detail around how they engage with these questions and they engage with them much more naturally, which is a great starting point. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your ambitious and interesting book today. Uh, anything else you want to say? Well, I'm grateful to have me on again. Hopefully, uh, like I said, hopefully the third time's a charm. Maybe I get to come back for a fourth. Got to write another book. <laughs> that was Michael Slaby. Michael's at michaelslaby.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.